0: The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute. Loving Wayward Souls.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the chance to open up your word and see how it applies to various different issues. Thank you for all the speakers that you have provided and just really the wisdom from your word. And just pray that we would be messengers that are passing along. Uh, helpful words from you, our great comforter, our wonderful counselor. And I pray as we think this next hour on the specifics of issues related to combat trauma, that you would give me clarity of thought and word, and that uh, everybody here would be encouraged and equipped to minister to uh, those who've experienced some horrific uh, events in this life. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, a couple of precursors. How many of you guys were here for the pre-conference on PTSD? All right. So you'll, you'll. Some of you will hear a, l- a little bit of duplication from that. If you were here, uh, this is going to have a lot of unique content because it is focused in more on combat trauma. So I'm not going to go into the, the overarching definitions of post-traumatic stress disorder, that kind of thing. But if you're, if you're interested, and you missed the pre-conference. Check that out because that's there's a lot of great information that. Uh, that uh, that sounds a little pretty braggadocious, right? Uh Greg Gifford said some great stuff and I happen to teach a, a bit on that stuff too. So I encourage you to check that out. Let me ask you this, how many of you are veterans of the or maybe currently serving in the military? Alright. And how many any spouses, family members, veterans? Alright. Of those who are anybody still serving? No? Alright, where's my where are my Air Force guys? All right. Any Army, Navy, Marine? All right, we're all here. <laughs> Except the Coast Guard. I, I think I ran into a Coast Guard guy at my church, and uh, we have to include them. Even though they moved over to the Department of Homeland Security, they'll still, they, they still help us out. Um, so to, this lecture is specifically, uh, uh, just so for those of you who didn't hear my intro, my name is Curtis Solomon. I'm the director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, but my interest in post-traumatic stress disorder and those types of issues uh, really came about through my own personal military service. I served in the United States Air Force, as I mentioned. I was not a com- I'm not a combat veteran. I was, never, uh, I was deployed, but never to an active theater uh, of operations. Never saw combat um, but just had a love for the military. My dad was in the Air Force. My grandpa was in the Army and then the Air Force because he got smart and uh and um served there and then I went to seminary. I really felt the Lord calling me to pastoral ministry early on in, in high school. But during college wanted to give back to my country, so I served uh in the uh, joined up in the California Air Guard, got activated after 9-11 for Operation Noble Eagle transferred to the Kentucky Air Guard and got activated for Operation Enduring Freedom. um, My deployments were to Puerto Rico and uh, Mildenhall Air Force Base in England, so my job epitomized what you would call the Chair Force, so any of you guys are familiar with that? I own it, that's what it was for my my career field uh, specifically. after seminary, though, I went to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs as well to help pay the bills while I was raising support for a different ministry I was involved in. And it, it deepened my desire to help uh, our nation's heroes who were struggling with the invisible wounds of war. Um, I was at the regional office in Phoenix, and I was in charge of all the what are called GWAT vets that were just getting out, Global War on Terror. And, uh, don't hate on the VA. Not everybody there is as bad as the media would like you to think. There are some good people who work there. There are some not as helpful people that work there as well. But I was one of those guys who was trying to help process compensation disability claims. And rather than just trying to get my job done, I was actually trying to get claims through, so I would call veterans to talk to them to see if they could help expedite their claims through the process, because that would, it just made it faster. And I, I had multiple conversations with people where I just realized there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of hurt, and there's not a lot of help, that real, real substantive help. And I was, have been at, exposed to biblical counseling, been a part of biblical counseling for a number of years, and I thought, we need more. There just wasn't a lot of resources available to help out in, in the area of post-traumatic stress from a biblical counseling standpoint, so I started a Ph.D. in biblical counseling in 2014. Wanted to do PTSD, and I also wanted to help broaden biblical counseling into empirical research. And I had people say, "You'll never find a, ve- a population of people with post-traumatic stress that'll that you'll be able to work with." And you'll biblical counselors don't do empirical research. Well, the Lord blew those expectations out of the water and connected me with this amazing ministry called the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program. And I'm about to wrap up a dissertation that is an empirical-based research on a biblical counseling program with a population of veterans who struggle with post-traumatic stress. So there you go. Um, in, in your notes, my PowerPoint's not working, so in your notes, I'm on page 122 there. And the first thing, for those of you who, who are maybe unfamiliar with the military but you want you have a passion you have a heart to help those who've served as i've mentioned in our pre-conference PTSD is not a military only issue but we're in a combat trauma conversation so we're going to be focusing on combat trauma which is a military which is a military issue so one of the things that you're going to want to do if you're working with people in the military is you just kind of need to get a get a general understanding of military culture it is, it is its own culture, and every guy in here who is in the service will tell you that each branch has its own culture, and within each branch there are different pockets of the population that have their own subcultures, and you just kind of need to be familiar with that. For okay, so all you non-veterans, who can tell me the difference between a Marine and a soldier? I said non-veterans or non-military. <laughs> What's the difference with anybody? Guesses? Everything. Everything. (laughs) But I'm sure our Marine and Army brother would tell you that is true. Uh, Yeah, a a Marine serves in the United States Marine Corps. A soldier is a member of the United States Army. An airman is a part of the greatest branch of the military, the United States Air Force. And the sailors, or other names you can have for those guys, (laughs) serve in the Navy. If if you've never been around military guys, the benefit of being a part of the biblical counseling world is you're familiar with acronyms uh, because we have ACBC, IBCD, BCC, ACBC, all these other things, and military guys are going to use acronyms. I mean, it's just the the part and parcel of the conversation, the nomenclature, and oftentimes they're going to use some very colorful language. I was doing a class down in Texas on post-traumatic stress disorder, and I used the acronym WTF, which probably just broadly in culture you're familiar with. And people's jaws hit the floor that me being a leader in the biblical counseling movement and a pastor would say that. But I said, listen, if you are not comfortable, if you're going to be thrown off by people who use expletives and colorful language, you're going to, it's going to, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be uncomfortable because guys in the military, oftentimes, that's just, well, let's just say, Staff Sergeant Drake was my drill instructor in BASIC. Everybody remember their drill instructor? You'd never forget those guys. That guy said, damn, every other word. Like, he even moved, mixed it into the middle of words. I one time heard him say, damn station. <laughs> and I And I asked him about, we asked him at the end of the thing, sir, you say this all the time. And he said, well, the Air Force has stripped me of all my other favorite words, so that's the one I use in place of all of them. And I thought, all right. You're going to need to get familiar with that idea, the concept of brotherhood. uh, There's a lot of bravado, obviously, uh, in the military, especially in in the Marines, right? The few, the proud, the Marines. Um, And some of that is going to actually compound the difficulty that they face when they're struggling with post-traumatic stress. Because you have guys who have been trained to kill Trained to fight, trained to never run away in the midst of disasters that everybody else is trying to get away from. They're trained to run to the explosions, not away from the expo- explosions. And when they begin to struggle internally with nightmares or th- or fear or things that they don't, anxiety, things that they don't even personally understand, uh, I shared one guy shared his testimony. He started having panic attacks and. Uh, he felt like he was having seizures and he thought he was having epilepsy. It was panic attacks associated with post-traumatic stress, and he had no clue. But what that does is when your life is built on being strong and powerful and able to stand on your own two feet and take care of everything and every problem that comes your way, you feel broken. You feel weak. You feel like you are not what you are supposed to be anymore. That culture can actually compound that idea. So if you're a, c- a civilian, there's also sometimes in the military culture, there's a concept, there's an ideal that there's, there's us and there's them. There's, a, there's a, a veteran, a military community, and then there's everybody else. Because if you didn't raise your hand and swear uh, that you were willing to lay down your life for your country, you're just not quite up to snuff. Uh, when I was in basic, I remember getting ready for graduation, and one of the instructors said, you see that g- grandstand over there? That's what I like to call the sea of stupidity. And I was like, that's full of a bunch of veterans. Most of the time, like who goes to Air Force graduation except parents and, and veterans? But anyway, so there's, there can be this mentality. So what, what I just encourage you to do, if you're not, uh, if you're not from a military background, don't, don't worry about that. Don't that, let that be afraid. Just be humble. Be kind, be friendly, and, and be a learner. Be hum- and recognize and acknowledge that you don't understand everything that they're there and learn from your counselee. Ask them about the military. Ask them about military service because a lot of veterans uh, get even a little bit frustrated that people who enjoy the freedoms that they have sacrificially won don't even get, they don't even understand there's four, four or five branches in the military. You know, when people don't understand the difference between enlisted and officer ranks, it can be frustrating. So it's like, we we said we're going to die for you. You don't even know about us. You don't even care enough to know the military, what the military is all about. You don't know the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Who knows the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day? I'll put you on the spot now. <laughs> so learn. Ask questions. Find out more. Let them know that you care and that you don't think you know more than them or that you know more about what you don't know about. Don't pretend to know stuff you don't know. So ask good questions. Just become familiar with that that culture. Uh, Chad Robichaux, the founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, said when he came back, he was a force recon marine. He had done over eight tours in Afghanistan. He was working with Joint Special Operations Forces, sneaking uh, teams in and out of Afghanistan through an, uh, a, a pseudo-company that he was running there. And he, um, kind of the poster boy for joint special operations at the time, got out because of severe PTSD. He's the guy who didn't know what was going on with his body, and he, he realized at one point he was putting himself and his teammates in danger because uh, he was having these basically blackouts where he wouldn't actually black out, but he would lose um, memory of, of lengths of time. And he realized at one point he'd gone about two weeks, and he couldn't remember what had happened the last two weeks. And that's what finally triggered him to realize, I'm in trouble. Something's going on. I'm, I'm putting other people in danger. So he um, called for a med- an emergency evac, blew his cover. He got evacuated out, and they said, listen, you're severe PTSD. You're out of here. We can't use you anymore. And he felt lost, he felt broken, he felt useless, he felt discarded. Uh, So he threw himself into, he had done wrestling and somebody said you should try Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So he got into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, became a world famous, I mean he was, he was, he's a tiny guy, his nickname was Mighty Mouse for a while and he, world champion MMA fighter had a, started a, a BJJ school that had thousands of students in Texas on top of his game. On top of the world, everything seemed to be going just fine. But in the background, his life was falling apart. His marriage was falling apart. He was sleeping around with women. He was doing all kinds of stuff that he shouldn't have been doing and got to the point where his wife said, listen, the, the, the divorce papers were on the table. He had also been a police officer. Done all these things done amazing amazing work and his wife said listen I don't understand why you can fight for your country you can fight for a belt but when it comes to your family and things that should be most important for you you quit and he said that stuck to him because he he's not a quitter and God used that to turn him around but he he in his own testimony said listen and he and en- he ends up being discipled by a, a civilian a guy who had never served in the military for over a year and then really transforms, changes life around. He and his wife stayed married. They reconciled. Uh, been married for quite a while now. But he said, listen, in my mind and my thinking, there was combat veterans, then there's non-combat veterans, then there's civilians, and then there's Americans, and then there's everybody else. And you had these levels of of approval that you had to work your way through to get into him before he would be willing to open up to you. So you just need to be aware. Um, you might have a family member, a friend, somebody who's struggling that you're trying to reach out to, and they have these walls up against you because you maybe you haven't served. Um, Just know that is there, but know that God is greater than that and He can break through any of that and keep just be there and be ready and willing to listen and answer questions and talk anytime they are willing to do that as well. Uh, Getting used to that culture. So, the second point on your outline there is addressing the charge you haven't been through what I've been through. This is the exact same thing. Um, This is not foreign, this is not unique to PTS. Uh, This is an issue that. People wrestle with in biblical counseling all the time, right? I mean, moms deal with this. If you're a mom and you don't have kids, all the moms who have kids will tell you you don't know what it's like because you don't have kids. If you're not, if you're single and you're trying to counsel a married couple, they will say you don't know what it's like because you don't, you're you're single, you've never been married. There's an element of truth to that, but the reality is that God's word has told us that there is no temptation that has taken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful to help bring. The struggles and the, the, the difficulties that people face are not unique. Even combat trauma. And the beautiful thing is, is that um, you can help show them through Scripture. You can tie them to the Bible and characters in the Scriptures who have been through intense difficulty. I mean, if you think about guys like David... Guys like Joab, guys like Saul, they saw combat, hand to hand combat. I remember opening up to a bunch of veterans one time and talking to them about the fact that, I mean, if you live by the UCMJ and the Geneva Convention, you're not allowed to mutilate the dead bodies of, of people, right? Of your enemy. You kill people, you, if, if they're doing body collection, you collect them and you put them, but you treat them with care. You don't mutilate them. David, what was his dowry? Foreskins. I don't want to get too graphic, but you don't. People don't just hand those over. He and his friends went and mutilated the dead bodies of Philistine soldiers in order to get Saul the dowry for Michael's hand. They were taking. I mean, the sling. He decapitated Goliath with his own sword. I mean, these are blood and guts types of stories that scripture has. I mean, guy shoves a sword into a fat king so far that the hilt just gets swallowed up and the guy's fat, right? Or Samuel cuts that guy apart in front of Saul because Saul doesn't want to do it. Or the guy who's concubine, he, he severs into 10 pieces and sends it to all the different tribes of Israel. Like there is some gross stuff in scripture that they just might not be familiar with. And when you begin to show them That the Bible is not a bunch of fairy tales of hunky-dory, happy life. It addresses the real hard issues of life. It can connect their story to the scriptures. And then when you you can connect them to David that way, you can connect them to the psalms that David writes and how God brings him comfort and peace and satisfaction and joy even in the midst of horrific suffering. And then most of all, you can point them to Jesus Christ who is the greatest sufferer of trauma ever in all of human history. And if you were at the pre-conference, you remember I, I highly, highly, highly emphasize the fact that the greatest good that ever was brought about through in all of history was brought about through the greatest suffering, the greatest torture and trauma that was ever executed by any human being ever. So, so help them jump over that hurdle by pointing them to those things, pointing them to those stories in Scripture. And then for those, since we're talking about combat trauma, I highly encourage you to check out the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program, mightyoaksprograms.org. It should be on your resources list in your notes. That program is able to bridge that gap because it is a peer-to-peer organization. The entire thing is run by combat veterans speaking to other combat veterans. So when those guys show up, they feel like they're isolated. They might even take a little bit of pride in the sense that nobody else understands what I've been through. And they show up on Sunday night or Monday afternoon whenever the program begins. They've got hoodies up. They've got sunglasses on. Their arms are folded. And they're just staring, glowering at everybody like, you have no idea what I've been through and you can't understand. And then they have former Force Recon Marines, Navy SEALs, combat engineers, infantry guys get up and just share how God broke them down after they saw such horrors in combat and then built them back up and has put them on a new path to bring glory and honor to His name. And those walls just get torn down. It is amazing to see guys go from that to weeping on each other's shoulders, giving their lives to Christ and being baptized on uh, the end of, by the end of the week it is a, it's amazing so I encourage you um, if you're working with somebody who's wrestling with post traumatic stress to point them to this as a resource and they know they're not the end all be all they need to send that person back home to a church or to a person who's gonna love them and continue the discipleship process and that's where you get to come in but please 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 utilize that you need to recognize that the the horrors of com- the unique horrors of combat There are some horrific things that you will see in a combat zone that you're not going to see anywhere else. One of the things that Chad talks about in his book, in his own testimony, is the fact that it's one thing to think about those horrors being, like if you see an automobile, or you see somebody who has been killed in a natural disaster, that can be very traumatic. That can be very horrifying. But if you see somebody, and you might even see somebody who's been dismembered in 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 a car accident, or in a, hor- in a natural disaster, that's horrible. But when you see somebody who has been dismembered or tortured or killed by another human being, that adds another level of difficulty to it that is more traumatic. And that's what Greg was talking about a little bit yesterday, is there's an interpretive nature. It is Different. It affects our soul differently when we see the horrors that another human being can inflict on another human being. In Chad, when he was in Afghanistan, his wife would call him and and say, Hey, I'm praying for you. And he said, Don't pray for me because God is not in Afghanistan. And the reason he said that is all the horrors and the atrocities he had seen inflicted by human beings on other human beings. And he talks about the killing pool where they would take people and shove them off a high dive that the Russians had built, or there was on the shallow end of the pool, and on the deep end of the pool, there were all these bullet holes lining where they would do public executions, and some of them had to be the height of children. Or they would just shove them off the high dive and have them hit the concrete, or they had a steel cable, they would tie it, wrap around their necks, shove them off the high dive, and their heads would be severed from their bodies. I mean, you just are going to see horrors that you aren't going to experience in other places. Another thing that's going to be unique to combat is, is the, the warrior mentality and culture that can be adopted by different units within the military. If you've seen uh, guys overseas, they'll adopt insignia of their for their unit related to the spartans or the or the vikings or other things like that and you'll you'll hear them even talk about adopting pagan rituals or ideals like brother i'll see you in valhalla and just that that warrior type of mentality that bonds the unit and brings them together gives them a different identity but what that can also do is it can lead to them participating in and doing things and having a mentality that is just not acceptable in in contemporary, civilized American life. So when they get out of that unit, they come back home, they feel like I'm a monster. If my family knew what I did over there, they wouldn't love me. If people really knew what I had gone through, what I thought, what I believed, what I felt and did in my heart, they wouldn't accept me. You need to understand those are some things that might be running through their minds. You need to understand the high high-stress, high-tempo life that guys are living in under all the time. Um, <clears throat> I think there needs to be further research done in the area of people who are in an active theater of combat for a long period of time, even though they never participate in combat, the The stress of being on alert and in a combat zone constantly for, for months on end has bad effects on our brains and on our bodies. Uh, the same stress hormones that are active and acting horribly wrong in somebody who's been diagnosed with PTSD can still be at play in the life of somebody who never saw a traumatic event because they were constantly surrounded by it. So you think about the, the, the guy, the young soldier, whose his job is to drive a Humvee up and down one of the highways in Iraq that has been notorious for IED attacks and he's always hearing about this Humvee that got hit, this convoy that got hit, this guy that got blown up, this guy that got blown up, or man, all these people he's lost. And he might never actually be in an an IED attack or never be shot at, but his sense of alertness and the stress that he's under the entire time is going to have a negative effect on him as well. And he's not going to get the support and the help that the VA does offer. Even though it's not perfect, they do offer some help because he can't get a diagnosis of PTSD. Because in order to do that, you have to have a verifiable stressor and a diagnosis of PTSD. And a a verifiable stressor is a combat action ribbon or a combat infantry badge, a medic badge, some other, you know, a purple heart, or some other way to document that you were in combat. So you need to understand that there may be guys who haven't technically seen combat but are stressing and wrestling with the same things. Then you have compounding injuries. There are other physical injuries that'll go, I mean, if you're, if you're in an IED attack, you might, you might lose limbs or hearing. I mean, hearing loss now, the VA, it's almost like you just have to say, yeah, I was in the military and I got, I, my hearing's worse on the tail end than it was on the front end and I get service connected for hearing loss. Um, I mean, explosions and loud noises that cause acoustic trauma to your eardrums. It's, I mean, I have friends my age that are wearing double hearing aids. Uh, tinn- tinnitus, uh, losing limbs—all these other things compounded, and then traumatic brain injury is especially a problem in this mo- in modern warfare because the explosions that used to kill people because of the concussive blast would destroy their bodies or their internal organs. Because of modern advancements in body armor, they don't kill them, but they leave them with. Uh, severe internal injuries including traumatic brain injury and traumatic brain injury will manifest itself in all kinds of different ways because it depends on the different part of the brain that was damaged in the, in the in the trauma and that can come from I've worked with prison guards with TBI because they get assaulted and just their heads pounded into the ground or concussive blasts or your head gets smacked on the side of a vehicle in a in a rollover accident all kinds of things um, then you have the issue that's now being talked about as, or identified as moral injury. Um, really, moral injury comes down to the question of whether or not it is a question of personal guilt. Uh, and this is where biblical counseling, and, and the, actually it's the VA and the, the chaplain's corps which is pushing for this new diagnosis of, of moral injury, pushing uh, trying to separate it out from PTSD because... Um, Like I shared in the pre-conference, a lot of guys, even if they've seen intense combat, they've seen people killed, the questions, the things that bother them the most are what I did over there. And can God ever forgive me for doing that? Um, You know, you have technically legal or legitimate Opportunity to kill and, and to seek vengeance for things that you have seen or have seen done to other people. But then later on, you're in a question whether or not that was right. One of the guys I talked to, he said when we were early on in, in the, and I can't remember if he was in Iraq or Afghanistan, he said early on the rules of engagement were kind of iffy, kind of cloudy. Rules of engagement are basically when you're allowed to, shoot and when you're not allowed to shoot. Uh, And they were in a convoy vehicle, came around and cut into the convoy. And you have to make a split second decision. Is this going to be a vehicle born IED attack? Or is this just somebody who's in the wrong place at the wrong time? But if you want to save your your guys, you open fire, you eliminate that potential threat. And then it could have just been a family who is on its hurry to a birthday party. And you don't know. And so you start to question and wonder: Is what I did was it? Not only was it legal, it might have—they might have been cleared of all charges of, of wrongdoing if there was any investigation. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't eliminate the question in their mind of whether or not what I did was right or wrong. And then, like I mentioned, you'll have to go back and listen to the whole talk on the fight-or-flight system. But guys in the military, you, so we have this God-given security system in our bodies called the limbic system, the fight-or-flight system. But in the military, you're trained to, to hone that fight-or-flight system to fight a fight system. Because you're not allowed to run. You can't turn away. You can't hide. You have to. So things instead, when the fight-or-flight system gets engaged, sometimes involuntarily, like we, we talked about, is it's an immediate... Move to eliminate the threat. So, one of the instructors that I came across in, in uh, the Air Force, he was, uh, had been a part of uh, Tactical Air Control Party, TACP. I don't, you probably know. So, their Air Force guys are embedded with Army or Marine units to call in airstrikes. Uh, so, they live more like Army and Marine guys than they do Air Force guys. Just really, you know, fired up. Fired up. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> And he had, been, he had been deployed in the first Gulf War, so he was helping guide in those lasers that Norman Schwarzkopf had on CNN, flying in to blow up targets and doing other stuff. Well, part of, part of what he, you had to do when you're sleeping in a tent in the desert or sleeping on the ground in the desert is you have a buddy, well, if you have to get up and go to pee in the middle of the night, and you come home, come back, you have a counter countersign. So you have a, a word that you say, and if it's a friendly, they say the countersign so you know I don't have to kill that guy. Um, so, and that's just what you did to, to survive. So you, and to, to be safe and to be secure. Well, he comes home. He's sleeping at bed at night uh, in his room with his wife. He's not in the desert. He's not in a tent. And for some really unwise reason, he's sleeping with a 45 under his pillow. Well, his wife gets up to go to bed at night. Or to go to go pee at night. And she comes back. She doesn't say a sign. There's no countersign. He wakes up just not aware of what's going on. The next thing he knows, he has her pinned against the wall with his hand around her throat and the 45 to her head. He's trained. His fight or flight system is not. Run away if there's a threat. It's immediate. Eliminate that threat. You just need to be aware. And 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 that we don't want to go overboard with that and say like every veteran is crazy and they're going to flip out and kill somebody anytime something stressful happens. That's not the case. But you do need to be aware that that's that is how they've been trained to handle the stress response in their bodies. So even and this is where a lot of times fear. And men are, we tend to do this anyway, whether you've been in the military or not, fear we respond to in aggressive ways. We don't like to be afraid. We don't want to admit we're afraid, so we get angry. And this this just compounds it. So these are just some different things you need to be aware of um, as you're working with people who have experienced combat trauma. One thing you want to do is you want to investigate influencing factors in the person's life to see what what has caused or helped lead to or exacerbated the problem of their post-traumatic stress. So one of those is pre-traumatic factors. This is, this is what you've done, what you've believed, the things that happen in your life before you face trauma that have a, a massive influence on how you respond to a traumatic event. So you're, it's in the military now, they're talking about resiliency training. It's it's how do you how do we help people bounce back ahead of time? Well, the, the reality is is all of us have been trained in through our our family, our church or not church life, our our culture, all of these things, on what trauma is, how we should respond to it. So. Uh, Pastors and churches and families can do, actually, this is something I love to encourage people, is you can actually help prepare people beforehand to face trauma so that they don't wrestle with as many difficult questions after the fact. Um, but think about their upbringing. Were they raised in a Christian home, a godly home, one that actually taught true theology? Did they teach a theology of suffering that help them understand that suffering is a part of life and it's going to take place? Were they, did they grow up in abusive homes? One of the things that's been just uncanny is the number, it's probably over 70% of the guys who come through Mighty Oaks program were abused sexually or physically as a child. And at first I thought, man, you would think if they were abused as a kid, they would learn how to deal with difficulty better so that then when they face trauma in life, they responded better, but the reality is if you're in a home where you're getting abused, abused, Nobody's there. The, uh, probably the people who are supposed to be teaching you and helping you deal with suffering are the ones abusing you. So nobody's teaching you to how to handle it correctly. So you learn all these really bad ways of responding to stress and trauma and abuse and trial in your life, right? One, one guy, uh, retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel, he was sexually molested by a Boy Scout leader when he was younger. And he said the way that he responded, he said, I... I needed to know that I wasn't a homosexual because he felt like if that guy did that to me, then maybe that's what he thought I was. So his response was, I'm just going to sleep with as many women as possible so that I know I'm I'm not gay. That is not a biblical response to trauma, right? Or we learn to fight, or we learn to drink, or we learn to do drugs, or we learn to do whatever. These things play... Teach us, And then when we face the trauma later on in life, the more severe trauma, we go back to what we've learned. We just go back to what's normal. So these things play a, a, a part in their lives. Beliefs about killing versus murder. You know, if, you, if somebody has a proper understanding, if they're just told thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill, and then you're put on the combat field and said kill, you're like, well, which is it? Can I, can I be a Christian and be in the military? Chad actually had that question. He's like, I, I really felt like I had to put my Christianity, my God, on the shelf if I was going to do the things that I was called to do in the military. Because the two can't go hand in hand. But if you realize that God does sanction and he does ordain the taking of life in certain circumstances for certain reasons, that's different. And the command, thou shalt not kill, is not actually thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. And there's a significant difference between the two, but if somebody's been told their whole life, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't kill, and then they're given a rifle and said, go kill that person, there's a conflict there. And whenever there's a conflict between deeply held internal beliefs and reality, something has to give. So I either forsake my deeply held internal belief, or maybe I separate and split my reality or i live with this dissonance this this tearing this tearing apart my soul which i don't know i don't know what to do because i want to hang on to both and they don't seem to be able to work together if people are taught that life is basically good people are basically good and life is about getting happiness and being successful and doing all these things and then and then they see their friend shot in the head or they see them go through worse and they just don't understand why is that happening. I thought God was good and he cared about me and he was going to take care of me. This one army captain shares about his experience uh, going through the Battle of Wanot. It was one of the worst days in army history. A, uh, a unit of 27 guys lost nine guys in one day and almost got entirely overrun by Taliban fighters in Afghanistan. And the captain of that uh, unit had been a believer and there's was a, a, a soldier in his unit who was also a believer, strong believer funny guy, everybody loved him and he just got obliterated in the attack and the captain said I lost my faith because my faith I believed I had to deal with God that if I loved him and I, and I followed him that he would take care of me and he would take care of my men and we would come home And he said, That's what I thought Christianity was. So he abandoned his faith, but then later on he was reading a book by Johnny Erickson, Tata, and Steve Estes talking about suffering and how God uses suffering uh, for his good or for his glory and our good. And, And this captain said he began to realize that God loved him anyway and orchestrated those things in such a way and he was able to then regain his Christian faith because he had his change in that. But if people don't have these beliefs, if they don't have these understandings, there's, there's a, a trial, a difficulty going on in their lives. Then you have peritraumatic factors. That's what is happening right around the incident. What was the severity of the trauma? It's always horrible to watch somebody die. But there's a difference between watching somebody die of old age after they've lived a long, healthy, happy life and watching your 20-year-old friend ripped in two by an explosive. Was it man-made? Was it natural? How long was the exposure? Was it a one-time incident or was this a, a complex type of trauma where you were raped over and over and over and over and over again for years? That's more, that's not as explicitly combat trauma, but you, you get the understanding. Did you personally participate in the traumatic event? Was it your fault? Do you think it was your fault? What actually happened in the event? So these are questions you're gonna be trying to, to ask and draw out of the, the counselee that you're working with. Who else was involved? <sighs> Did you feel pressured to, to do that? Were you commanded to do something that you didn't think was appropriate? Um, do you feel like you gave in and you didn't do the right thing, you didn't stand up to uh, those who were commanding you to do those things? How did you interpret it? How did you respond? And then post-traumatic issues, How did, did you have support of your commanders, there's a there was a study done of police officers who are an officer-involved shootings, and those who did not have the support of their commanders were twice as likely to develop post-traumatic stress symptoms as those who did, because they felt that what they had done was not justified, and that they were they were in the wrong. So you, it points back to that interpretive nature. Um, did you get help? Were you able to process it? Did you, were you able to talk to somebody else about it quickly? Did you, was there medical issues or personnel involved? What was your personal response? Did you run away from God? Did you run to God? All of those things are going to play a part in how this person responds to the trauma. And then the, the next thing you want to do is you want, or one thing, another thing you want to do is you want to compassionately grieve the losses with the person um, I'm going to have to start moving Compassionately grieve loss Romans 12.15 says Rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep Somebody who's experienced combat Has lost something There's a certain loss of innocence That goes along with that I mean taking of life Or even attempting to take somebody else's life should, We should be bothered by that Right? It's kind of interesting to me that people call post-traumatic stress a disorder because I think if you're in a situation where you're seeing human life ended by other human life, you should be bothered by that. and if you're not there's there's that might be a sign of something uh, uh, something worse going on in your soul. Now that doesn't mean that every single instance right away you're going to feel this intense grief all the time. but think about that for a minute. I mean. Again, this is a norm. This I think this is a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances, not an abnormal reaction to really normal life. Right. So, um, but you want to grieve that loss with them, loss of a loved one. I have particular dates on my calendar where I call specific friends and just say, Hey, how you doing? Because I guarantee you, if somebody lost a loved one in combat, and they were there. They remember the date, they remember the time, they remember exactly what happened. And those dates on the calendar roll by as an anniversary for them, and they're a constant reminder that that person's not there. They're not a part of life. And those can be triggers for them to spiral downward. I call it one of the buddies. He said, yeah, last year at that time I was in the bar, and I was really getting close to just getting sloshed. And he just, in his own mind, by God's grace, said, you know what, I, I don't want to dishonor my friend's memory by pursuing that. So he turned away and he just started writing down things that he was thankful for, um, that were a blessing to him, things that he wanted to do to pursue. Something good to honor his friend rather than just going out and getting drunk. But you want to you wanna grieve that with them. So talk to them about the friends that they lost. Ask them about them. Ask them to tell stories. Because even, even if that brings about a kind of pain there's a, a kind of pain for remembering that is good, right? You talk to, if you, if you have, this one's not in your notes, but the book, uh, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Helped and What Didn't by Nancy Guthrie, something along those lines is a phenomenal book to just really help you remember whether it's in combat or not, if you've lost a loved one, it's more painful for that person's memory to be lost than to be brought back up. And it, even though bringing their memory back up might cause tears to flow, those are good tears. And it's a good to remember uh, that person because they are a loved one. Grieve personal injuries, both visible and invisible. I mean, uh, if somebody loses a leg or loses an arm or something like that, you know, you don't need to harp on it or whatever. They might have actually got, come to grips with, with the loss, so you don't want to. But acknowledge the fact, man, that is really hard. Thank you for... You sacrificed a lot for, for me and for our country. Thank you for that. Does that ever bother you? You know, ask them, how does that prosthetic feel? Is there anything, you know, just acknowledge the loss uh, and, and grieve with them. One of the, the invisible wounds, too, this is where it's really hard with post-traumatic stresses because you don't always see the difficulty that somebody's going through, but acknowledge to them the fact that, man, it is really hard. I couldn't just, I couldn't imagine being woken up every night with those kind of dreams and losing sleep or not knowing that I could go out into a public place and not be scared out of my mind to the point where I black out. Like I don't know what that's like, but I want to know and I want to learn as much as you can teach me and I want to help you walk through that. Another thing that they lose is they lose a way of life. This is especially true for people who wanted to be career military. Um, once a Marine, always a Marine, right? Guys who join up, they, think, they, they, they said, I'm going to enlist, I'm going to serve 20, 30 years in the military, and then all of a sudden they've, they've been trained, they've led other men in combat, they've been out on the field, they've done everything well, they're moving forward in their career, and then they're involved in some catastrophic accident, or maybe it's not... It's just a building up of one thing after another after another that eventually takes its toll on them internally, and they are discarded like they're broken trash. It's like the car that you drove for 300,000 miles. You don't put it on the shelf and give it a gold star. You send it to the trash heap. And if you were here at the the pre-conference, you got to hear Robert's story. He was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps for over 21 years, and he had been leading hundreds of men. And then he gets diagnosed with PTSD and a few other things. And he's sent to the Wounded Warrior Battalion where there's these guys, these enlisted guys, who and he has a platoon leader, all these other things. He gets sent to the Wounded Warrior Battalion where there's all these E2s, e 3 really young ranking guys who are telling him what to do. And he has no responsibility other than take meds and go to his doctor's appointments. I mean, he's losing out on his, what he had perceived as his identity. Another guy, he said, I w- when I was in the military, I was leading. I was Sergeant so-and-so, and I had respect, and people cared for me. But when I got, was diagnosed with PTSD and got suicidal, I was all of a sudden Mr., Mr. So-and-so who couldn't have shoelaces and couldn't have a razor and couldn't have this and couldn't have that. It's, it's demoralizing. Uh, oftentimes, and they gave themselves to something because they wanted to give back to something bigger than themselves. They felt like there's this, they bought into the culture. They loved the structure. They they believed, and there's an, an amount of trust that is necessary in your chain of command. In your chain of command, your leaders, your sergeants are all telling you, if you do this, you do this, you do this, if you trust your training, you trust your equipment, you trust the brother next to you, you go out there, do your job, and you will get back home safe and sound. And then that all goes to pot when your friend steps on a pressure plate. You did everything right you could do, and your procedures, your training, your equipment couldn't save you. It couldn't do anything, and you lost control, and everything you stood for, everything you believed in, comes crashing down. And then they toss you aside in your deepest moment of weakness, Combat destroys so much more than just bodies. Then you have the issues like survivor's guilt. Why wasn't it me who died instead of him? I mean, you'll, you'll hear stories all the time. I should have been on that Humvee. I was supposed to go out on that patrol. I was supposed to be there, and so-and-so swapped with me at the last minute, and they didn't come home. Why was it them and not me? The same blast could kill three guys in one vehicle and leave one guy alive. Why him and not me? Those kind of questions will need to be addressed. You, may, you will never be able to answer them entirely. But you can point them to the fact that, that God chose them for some reason to continue on living. Um, you'll need to address other ultimate questions like forgiveness, forgiveness, um, In biblical counseling, forgiveness is a big, big thing that we talk about because people don't understand it. So you'll need to deal with that. The idea of self-forgiveness is huge because they're wrestling with issues that they've done, of things that they've done. Uh, Another thing you want to, one of these ultimate questions is you want to answer for them the the questions of purpose, meaning, significance, and identity. Like if my entire identity was tied up in me being a marine or a sailor or the best NCO that I have ever been, that anybody could ever imagine, and then all of that is ripped away from them, they, they feel lost. They feel hopeless. They feel like a, they have lost their identity. They don't know which way they're going. They don't know what is important in their lives. One of the guys one time, I, I just asked him, I said, hey, have you ever been over to the American Legion post? And he's like, heck no. No. I said, well, why not? He said, all those guys do is sit around and drink and talk about old war stories. And he said, I don't want the best years of my life to be behind me. I want them to be ahead. And he said, besides the, those years that they're all talking about and they're reliving these war stories, they're not the best years of my life. And I don't want to sit around and talk about them. I want to be moving forward. So the the beauty of biblical counseling, the beauty of the scriptures, the beauty of what Christianity is all about is it has called us to have our identity in Christ. And it has given us a new mission and a new purpose for living. You need to establish in them the purpose, the ultimate purpose of living for the glory of God, first and foremost, and then help them understand that their mission may not be to go out and save the world, but their mission might be to go home and love their kids. And they need to find significance and purpose and and importance in the daily tasks of of life and caring for their family. This is one of the one of the things I've talked about with the guys at the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program. That's that is a potential uh, hazard in the program is that it can be the Mighty Oaks program can be their new mission. Right, because a lot of these guys who've been taken out of combat involuntarily, they want to go back. How many? There are tons of guys who will go back as civilian contractors because the military won't let them go back, but they can get back in the fight if they find a a private security firm or a government contracting agency that'll send them back there as a private contractor. They want to be in the fight. Why? Because they. It's not just some of it. It's the adrenaline. They they they're combat junkies, but others they're they want to be in the fight they have brothers who are still fighting and they want to contribute they want to give back well mighty oak can be can be a supplement for that they're still fighting for something bigger than themselves they're still fighting for their brothers but the problem is is they if the if they could give one week a month to away from their families back there helping other people brothers and sisters who have fought they fought alongside some of them literally and that can be their new mission and it sounds really important, and it is really important. But they they can lose sight of the fact that the most important thing, the best decision that they could make with their life and their time, is to stay at home with their kids and play Legos on the floor. So you need to help them find the the glory of God in the mundane, in the seemingly mundane. They need a, a new mission and a new purpose, and that's the thing: is they will they understand the concept of sacrificial. Giving of sacrificial love, of sacrificial life for other people. They just need to, you need, might need to help them hone that and direct that more towards uh, what God has called them to, in not the military, not some other place other than that. Uh, and then lead them to God's sovereignty. Eventually, this is not where you want to jump right away with somebody. Um, but you wanna lead them to this point where you can, they can understand that God truly did use the, the traumatic events in their lives, the combat, the loss of their own uh, injuries, the loss of the loved ones that they've had for God's glory and for His good, or for our good. And, and just helping them develop a good theology of suffering that they can be better off now than they were before because of the trials and the traumas that God has taken them through. And I talk about reassigning refuge. That just that means to help them find in the moments where they're struggling, where they're wrestling, where they're having difficulty to not run to the alcohol, the drugs, the women, whatever else they might be tempted to run to, but to run to Christ. And, and fill their minds and give them the opportunity of, of tons of scriptures that they can run to. They can pray. Teach them to pray. Teach them to meditate. Teach them to, to delve into God's Word and to journal and to, to commune with the Lord. The, when, when God says, be still and know that I am God, that, that term be still can even be translated, cease from striving and know that I am God. And to be able to teach somebody who, is, who has been trained and taught to strive in life continually, to be able to rest in God and his goodness and the knowledge of, of his love is, is a beautiful thing. For them to be able to cease from striving and know that he is God. Um, we've got a few minutes for questions. I know that was a lot to cover <laughs> in an hour, and there was even more I could have said and wanted to say, but had to move forward because we're limited by time. But questions? Anybody? Yes. I know we all speak about fight or flight, mm-hmm. but there's also another one that's in there that's never mentioned, and that's freeze. Yes. hmm All, all the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The question was uh, the limbic system. We talk about fight or flight system, but the another alternative that often happens is freeze, where people just seize up in the in moments of intense fear or trauma or whatever. That does that can happen. It does happen. And if that happens, what's typically going to happen with a combat veteran is they're going to feel extremely guilty, and you're going to want to work through them with with that and just talk about the fact that that's. That's natural. Um, You know, and the guys at Mighty Oaks will talk about that with people that fear, courage is not the absence of fear. And and they'll quote the great theologian John Wayne. Fear, courage is not the absence of fear. It's being scared to death and mounting up anyway. Right. But they, and they're going to have to wrestle with that guilt because they were so afraid they froze and they didn't go go and charge, but letting them know that everybody else was afraid too. And they'll say, well, why didn't I charge forward? I froze, I say, I don't know. And there may not be a, an answer to that question, but the beauty is whether it was sinful or not, God forgives and God loves in spite of that. And that's where, again, going back to the God's sovereignty, When, if you walk them through the life of Joseph, it's a really helpful um, story for them to connect with, understanding trauma, uh, for being forsaken, being thought that they were alone and isolated, and then coming to the end where Joseph is able to say to his brothers, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good, and help them to see, even the, even if you had evil intention, even if you froze because you wanted everybody else around you to die. And they're going to say, well, no, that's not why I froze. But even if that was your intention, God can still use that for good. And I guarantee that you're not alone in that struggle, First Corinthians ten 13. You're not the only person who's ever frozen in combat. Um, and that if they would be willing to share that with other people, that they would probably, there would be others who could uh, be benefited from them being willing to share that struggle and, and, and find companionship and hope and courage that they were not alone in that so yeah that's a good point thank you okay, yeah
0: awesome. so my, my wife works at, at the VA um, over in, in Austin and uh, she she worked with the claims department for quite a while um, as, as many of you guys might know that um, Air Force and Navy are probably the ones that claim the most in regards to disability and those type of claims whereas Army and Marine are the least amount because you guys are totally suck it up pretty much. And so with that being said, um, especially <clears throat> right now that we're, we're kind of like in transition where we're not in the fight as much. Afghanistan, Iraq, those places. Um, a lot of people are thinking, okay, well, I guess things are kind of winding down as far as the war is concerned. Well, to be quite honest with you, I think in a lot of ways, it's just now about to wrap up because things with TBI, depression, anxiety, um, PTSD. a lot of people don't talk about that stuff when you want to get out. So some of that stuff you may not even know until you get like years later. Yep. Um, so I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is, is that at this point we have to be mindful that, that these things are going to in the reverse and, and we're in a position right now, especially um, for those of us that have been in, in uniform and also, especially those of us that, that are social surprised also. To be able to command both these worlds together in a certain way that, that has never been done before for these folks, so um, I'll just say to, to, again, just be mindful of that. It's it's not it's not winding out of anything. I would say it's going to start wrapping up. and We just have to, have, uh, to be visual very 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 vigilant about it.
1: Yeah, that was a obvious point is exactly right, that a lot of times it's not in the midst of the struggle that these things are going to arise, it's oftentimes after. And I was sharing with Don ahead of time, a lot of first responders, people who have served 20, or, or in the military served 20, 30 years, they might never struggle at all with any type of post-traumatic stress type of symptomology, but then when they retire, and they're able to relax and they have free time on their hands and they're not busy 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 because busyness is a great uh, solution to this problem Yeah, coping mechanism um, the all that stuff starts to bubble up to the surface and i've i i warn guys especially police officers first responders or whatever i'm like if you're about to retire you you may never have had a, this experience and i hope that you never do my prayer is that you don't but i just want to let you know this is a normal thing that might happen you might start Remembering those things might start being woken up with these nightmares. Might start seeing being triggered by these things. That's part of the nature of post of the post traumatic stress. Is it can occur three a month later, or it can occur fifty years later. Um, so, so yeah, just be aware of that. So yeah, with a, when the conflict subsides, the internal conflict will often arise. So, um, we are out of time. Thank you all so much.
0: Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.